Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Media, ad tech, renewable energy, and seafood? It's quite the eclectic mix of business interests, but it's just a selection of the many professional endeavors of today's guest, Andrew Murray. Andrew is the CEO of Broadside 9, a media agency specializing in interactive media solutions. Andrew was born in Ottawa, but spent the majority of his youth in Prince Edward Island. You'd think a media agency CEO would be armed with a business degree, but Andrew studied neuroscience, focusing his research on learning and memory functions of the brain. And it's a degree that comes in handy when you consider persuasion, brand engagement, and recall are all major parts of marketing. Andrew Murray stops by to chat about growing up and studying in Atlantic Canada, his passion for art, his entrepreneurial ventures in the media space, the innovative way he's modernizing legacy infrastructure to bring green energy to homes in Prince Edward Island, and jumping into the restaurant business during the global pandemic. Broadside's a media investment group that I founded with my partners in 2018. Um, the agency is based in Singapore, but it's got its larger offices in Montreal, in London, Malaga, uh, that's in Spain. Our group is a little bit different, that our core competency is really focused on ROI and acquisition services. Uh, we actually carry a lot of revenue share partnerships with our customers. So it's it's interesting. Our group, we tend to think of ourselves more as media investment managers rather than media buyers. Um and my role at Broadside, it's changed a few times since I started, but, uh, and it's, it can be quite difficult to capture. Um, communication is a huge part of my role, just making sure that all of our teams are really synced up on our core mission, um, making sure that our day-to-day work is always linked back to that vision. Uh, I also direct internal investment strategy. So I lead the vision for our technical product investments, as well as the development of our service suite. I um I'm the person who kind of spends money internally, making sure that we can stay ahead of the market. And then, yeah, I mean, as one of the early partners, I guess I take care of anything else that needs to get done. Andrew, I'm looking very much forward to our chat. You're an Atlantic Canada guy, but we're actually having this call from London, England. You just recently relocated over there, right? I did, yes. It's been about, uh, it's been about four months for me. So let's go all the way back to the beginning then, before you ended up in England. Where are you from? I'm from Charlottetown. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm from the smallest province in the country and uh, grew up in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island. And the smallest capital city. So what was life like growing up in Charlottetown, PEI? Charlottetown is a beautiful place to grow up, honestly. It, uh, growing up in PEI, well, it was pretty quiet. I grew up in the country, um, super close to my family. My grandparents out there had, had 15 grandchildren and we were all very close. Um, so I guess, you know, we grew up like pretty normal rural Canadian kids, I suppose, uh, you know, spending winters skating on frozen ponds and uh, most of the summers on PEI beaches. Um, interestingly, yeah, I mean, we, we spent our childhood outside, not anywhere close to media. Um, I don't think I had cable until I was a teenager, but uh, all in all, beautiful, like incredible experience, you know. But technically you were born in Ottawa, correct? That's right. Yeah. Um, I was born in Ottawa. I, I was only there until I was about two. My family moved to Dartmouth, Nova Scotia when I was that age and uh, then on to Charlottetown when I was 10. Um, my father was, a, was an entrepreneur during the dot-com rise in the 90s. 
And my mother's held several kind of key management roles with the federal government, uh, government to government. So as they were building their careers, uh, you know, as that generation did, we moved around a lot. So what were your interests or hobbies growing up? Like what kept you busy in PEI? We know that. Okay. So we know it wasn't cable television. So was it television yeah. at all? Or is, is, is it because you had so few channels or access to channels that pushed you outdoors a little bit more than say someone living in Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal? Very possible. You know, it's, it's funny, Victor. I always wondered whether, whether we weren't getting channels because we were out in the country or, or if everyone else in, in Canada had the same reality. Um, yeah, uh, I think we had, you know, one and a half channels until I was probably 13 or 14, you know, one, uh, one crisp CBC run and then, and then uh, another foggy like CTV channel, I believe. But yeah, I, I didn't spend a lot of time in front of the television. Um, sailing was my thing when I was growing up. My, my grandfather built me this uh, tiny one kid wooden sailboat pretty much as soon as I could walk. And um, we had this, we had a small little bay in front of my, my parents' house in PEI. And I would just sail this thing kind of back and forth all, all day, every day. Um, yeah, it was funny. The PEI was a great place for me. because I, I was a nerdy, outdoorsy kid. Um, I was crazy about geology. Like I, I would spend time just by myself collecting rocks and looking for fossils on the beach. Uh, a ton of time in museums. <laughs> it was... It was a, a perfect way to grow up on, on the East Coast. And Talk then, to me a little bit about that, actually, because you said museums, because I know that you, you've got a real fondness for the art. And how did you get into those galleries in PEI? Give us an idea of what was around Charlottetown that actually brought you into the arts. Yeah, um, it's a great question. And, and I think about this often. I, I sort of just stumbled into that industry. I... Uh, when I was in junior high and then in high school, um, I would spend tons of time just wandering around these galleries all over Charlottetown. And I'm not sure really why there were so many, but there were a ton of little private art galleries, um, a lot of local kind of folk art, paintings, et cetera, that were popping up around Charlottetown. And yeah, at some point I I just started gravitating towards that. And, and I would spend tons and tons of time in, in these spaces meeting the owners and the curators, et cetera. Um, honestly, I, I spent so much time in that space in Charlottetown that some of the private owners of these places would end up hiring me to do odd jobs. Like, um, you know, if they were moving out of their house or repacking art for, for shipment or sale. Uh, yeah, I was probably 13, 14, 15 when that was going on. Gilles Olan is actually your childhood influence, or I guess you could say your teenage influence. It's not an artist. Tell everyone who Gilles Olan is. It's pronounced Giles Oland. Uh, oh, I messed that up completely. Oh, <laughs> yeah, this guy, I apologize yeah, to yeah. Giles if he's listening. <laughs> no problem. Yeah, it, Giles was actually the, uh, he was my first investor in, in my first project that I ever, uh, ever kickstarted. I, he, he was a next door neighbor when I was living in Halifax. Uh, I was at Dalhousie at that time. And um, I had just, I had seen this guy who wasn't too much older than I was build companies and uh, take over teams um, and kind of build a life for himself by making his own opportunities. Uh, he was, he was in the tech space and yeah, uh, you know, looking back, it, it was the first example of, of someone that I could see was who was very relatable, who had built his own business and, uh, and was kind of just living his life in a way that that he had constructed. It, it was 
fascinating for me at the time. So between knowing Giles, because he was your neighbor, and then your father as well, working in the dot-com industry, do you think, and he was a tech entrepreneur as well, do you think it was those two things that really propelled you in that direction as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I started really thinking about entrepreneurship when I was in university. Um, and seeing examples of, of uh, seeing examples like Giles, like my father, other people who, who are just kind of popping up in, into my consciousness, um, it got me really excited because I was, I was in research and I was doing a lot of self-directed work at that time. I was also super poor. So I was getting pretty creative about how I could build wealth, how I could, you know, build up, build opportunities and just try to get out in the world and, and do something for myself. Um, yeah. So seeing these people around me who had gone through that, who had done that and were, and were willing to take the time and sit with me. Um, talk to me about how they got to where they were. I mean, it, it really lit a fire. Um, yeah, it, it allowed me to get really creative about just thinking about how my career could kind of move on. You know. And speaking of career, it technically started when you were delivering swimming lessons at the age of 14. Now, were you doing this on your own? like, <laughs> Or did you actually like work for, say, a public pool or a private pool? <laughs> I, I did both. Um, I'm not even sure if I if it was fully legal at the time i started uh i started um with a public a public pool uh like most kids do I was 14 when i started doing that and um yeah so it, it was my first job uh it was an incredible experience I, I will say like it's a phenomenal first job for kids to learn leadership skills uh, accountability you know you're 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 coordinating a team um, leading a team of kids, you're answering to their parents, you're, in, you're studying curriculum, you know, at, at a certain level, and, uh, and finding like interesting, fun ways to communicate that and actually teach. Um, it, it, it's funny to me to think about it now that, uh, that, you know, kids are put in that type of leadership position when they're 14, 15, 16, because it's actually a lot of responsibility. Um, and uh, and it was it was a lot of fun. I took it even further and started. At some point, I started teaching kind of private lessons on my on my own in order to get in order to earn more money. I would jump into uh, you know hotel pools and stuff like that and coordinate directly with parents. I even started doing it for the elderly, which was an incredible experience too. So um, I don't I can't even remember how I got into that, but. Um, I started, uh, I guess, yeah, when I was 16, 17, I started teaching swimming lessons to uh, elderly students who were working on mobility and stuff. And uh, it was just an amazing, amazing way to meet, meet people. And um, obviously, I guess it was my first little business. I did something very similar to that as well. I was working at a public pool. I did that through, I'd say, the latter part of my teenage years and into my early 20s. And I want to know, you mentioned that the different skills that come with lifeguarding and teaching swimming lessons, you got to throw patience in there because anyone who has taught swimming lessons, especially to a small child, learning to put their face in the water for the first time, you're going to get puked on. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Unquestionably. Yeah. And you also mentioned too, dealing with the parents because that it can be an interesting thing because they're watching and you've got some parents that are realists and say, you know what, my kid can't swim or they're being, uh, a little shit disturber in the water and disturbing the class, I'm going to not jump into the water, but at least I'm going to empathize with the, uh, with the instructor who's trying to keep, trying to keep the class in order. And then you've got some parents who think their kids are going to the Olympics and you kind of have to find a nice way to say to them, Hey, we're a little far off from that. I just want to keep them from drowning. 
what a great crash course in in client relations, hey, Victor. Like, oh my uh, God. absolutely right. <laughs> absolutely. We could trade stories about that forever. But uh, you mentioned Dalhousie University. Why? Why there? Dalhousie was my second university. Um, I had uh, I started in two thousand seven after completing two years at UPI in in Charlottetown. So. Um, yeah, my my educational background is is a bumpy one. I I actually failed a big part of high school. Uh, so my local university in Charlottetown was really the only one who would take me when I was coming out of grade twelve. Uh, I entered the arts program at UPI. I spent two years there. I uh, you know I got into psychology. It was an elective. You know when you kind of come into first year undergrad, you're really just taking anything that that. Uh, in my case, anything that they would let me take. I had such a terrible academic kind of background. Um, but yeah, I absolutely fell in love with the study of human beings and the brain. Like psychology really, really captured me. And then I, I kind of played that forward and I switched over to Dalhousie in 2007 to pursue a specialized undergrad in neuroscience. Um, it was honestly, I, I loved studying that uh, that discipline, it was it, it was an incredible, incredible time for me. Uh, it was the first time that I ever studied something that I really, really loved, that I was really motivated to dig into. Um, it's when I kind of found my love of learning and, and stuff like this. So it was exciting, but it was brutal because I didn't have, because I had such a rocky experience in high school, I didn't have um, like basic high school sciences and maths. So yeah, once I, I left UPEI Arts, I went over to Dow, um, started in neuroscience, but I had to do, I had to run back and complete like high school calculus and stuff, which I never had because I was now in the science program. So for the first couple of years, well, yeah, once I got into neuroscience, I would spend all day in class um, at Dalhousie and then I would do night school uh, covering my bases for high school calculus and chemistry and stuff like this. It was, uh, it was pretty wild. Um, yeah. And then once I got back on track, I, I spent three years in Dalhousie's neuroscience program and then one went on to do a whole pile of research with, uh, with the medical school there. Okay. A lot to unpack there. I do want to go back to <laughs> high school. No, I want to go back to high school a little bit because something that I've noticed from just reading up and following other entrepreneurs is that and let me know if you think this term is correct towards you and your high school career. Do you sit, do you think you were restless by any chance? Cause it kind of sounds like entrepreneurs can be restless in high school because they haven't had the opportunity to age into what they really want to do. Because let's face it, sure. You can be an entrepreneur when you're a teenager, but there's a big difference between starting a tech company and delivering swimming lessons. Like, do you think that was the case for you in high school and why your high school academic career didn't go the way you wanted it to? Mm, yeah, I, I second that. I think I think a lot of entrepreneurs do do struggle with that period of their sort of learning career. Um, there was a lot of restlessness. No, no question. It's a great word to use to to describe that uh, that experience, that time. Um, it was it was confusing, honestly, Victor. And I think I, I've heard a lot of uh, a lot of stories from other entrepreneurs too that reflect that. I think you know, when you're going through, say, grade 11, grade 12, when you're getting ready to square up against university and the next steps in your career, and, uh, you know, to have people in authority positions and your parents, etc., put a pressure on you to decide, you know, what you're going to do, who you're going to be, what you're going to kind of invest their money in, 
over the next few years. Um, it was very hard for me, just based on my personality type, I guess, to define a career at that age. Um, yeah, like I, I had some interest in history. I had some interest in other things. Like some of my classes were interesting to me. Most weren't at all. Most, I was just kind of annoyed and bored and wanted to get out. Um, but, you know, with uh, at the end of the day, trying to decide what I was going to do, you know, for me, the reason why I started failing classes is because I just stopped going. Um, it didn't feel like a fit for me. And uh, I guess I was I was taking on a bit of a like a pretty independent, pretty rebellious streak. And I just stopped showing up. So, yeah, there was one period of time there where I just I didn't know where I was going to fit in. And uh, I knew it wasn't at Colonel Gray High School in Charlottetown. So I didn't bother showing up anymore. And um, it wasn't until it wasn't until kind of late in my what should have been my 12th year, I decided that I did want to go to university. And so I buckled down and, and I did uh, I did summer school. Um, and then I did a, like a loaded two semesters in order to get back on track. And yeah, just scraped into university like by the skin of my teeth. Had you not pursued it the way you had, you probably wouldn't have found your love of psychology because when you went to the University of PEI, you were taking, you mentioned that you were doing an arts degree at the beginning. And that's the great thing about a general arts degree is, is that it's kind of wide open. There are certain context credits you have to take, but that gave you the freedom to say, okay, let me go through the course catalog and see what I can take, or at least what sounds good to me. And then that kind of led you to Dalhousie and neuroscience. Like, do you think you would still, you would have found neuroscience at Dalhousie and studied that had you not had the opportunity to, I don't know if floater's the right term, but to just, you know, kind of go with the flow for about two years at the University of PEI, picking and choosing the courses that you wanted to take? Yeah, it's a really good point. I think, um, I think for, for me, for any entrepreneur, like this is still, this is still real in my, in my day-to-day -day life today. Um, like I had to run into those walls. I had to make mistakes. I had to make decisions that uh that that i thought were right and then find out that they were terrible um and and self-correct you know like that was the skill that i learned during that time and you're absolutely right like there's there's huge payoff there and we see that as entrepreneurs we see that even in in architecting media campaigns now like to be able to risk you know take an experiment like do an experiment figure some stuff out figure like lose other assumptions um when i was going through university just kind of feeling my way through it blindly. Um, yeah, I would enroll in courses, find out that I really didn't, I uh, wasn't interested in them. Um, I would, uh, I was just taking risks and eventually, yeah, you come, come across something in my case, it was psychology and then neuroscience that I truly loved. But, um, you know, there are a lot of bumps and bruises along the way to get there. And that's, that's still a principle that, you know, um, I leverage today all the time in business. And so what was your first job after graduation? I, I hung around the university for a little while. Um, yeah, I mean, again, when I found neuroscience, I, I went all in. I, I didn't want to do anything else. Um, I, uh, so after graduating, I, I graduated my undergrad, um, I guess in 2010, and I went into medical research for a couple of years. Um, I wasn't sure at that time whether I wanted to stay in neuroscience. So I stretched it out a little further with some research internships. I got to publish a couple of papers, which was amazing. I met some extraordinary people at Dalhousie uh, in uh, physiology, biophysics, and, and neuroscience. Um, the coolest thing I think today, when I'm when I'm sort of reflecting on that, 
is my research at that time, even, even though I didn't know a lot about what I wanted to do, um, it really came back around uh, to, to, to create a lot of value in my current career. My research was focused on learning and memory. I was doing, um, I was doing Alzheimer's work, looking at uh, trying to understand the biophysical processes of a memory being formed in, in a living brain. Um, like I was studying the re how relationships get formed between cells. Uh, so yeah, you, you know, a huge, it's funny because a huge part of my work in media has relied on the principles that I learned there. Um, I spent a lot of time observing, you know, how humans interact with another, how they build relationships, how, you know, uh, parts of their life become meaningful and what that means in like neural tissue. Um, yeah, so later, you know, into, into my first company, Spotful, and then into Broadside, we went on to talk about these fundamentals a ton. Uh, you can imagine, like, now when we're designing acquisition campaigns at Broadside 9, um, and we're working with clients to figure out how we can best maximize the value of their marketing investments, you can imagine we spend tons of time talking about how we can create lasting impressions and seed like real relationships between like offerings and customers. Um, and I don't mean that to sound cheesy. It's a very real part of our work. Like we, we do rely on the science um, and that's really special for me, you know, personally for me, it's, it's extremely cool that this research that I did after, after university still plays a role in what we do at, at B9. Oh, I, I don't think it's cheesy at all. I mean, persuasion is everything in the advertising world and with everything in advertising becoming that much more scientific, it only makes sense that we kind of weave neuroscience into that as well to understand, you know, what little nuances people are likely to gravitate towards. I'll give you an example. Years ago when I was at the old Astral Media before Bell bought them, we had a presentation from uh, the out-of-home department, which still lives on under the, the Astral name. And what they did was they sh they were they had basically done something with the transit shelters where they can actually see what grabs people's attention. And they were doing a bit of A-B testing with a poster or, or a billboard for uh, a radio station called Boom 97.3. And some of the information they showed was that when the poster had a beige background versus a black background, people were less likely to engage with it. But when it was on a back a black background they found that people's attention was a lot more captive at the transit shelter, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. I imagine you, you're going a little bit more deeper than that, but that's the kind of stuff that that concerns people more, especially if you're working on, say, for example, a digital acquisition campaign. You've got to know what little nuances keep people engaged. And I want to ask you, though, when you were doing the experiments in your research work after graduation, or I guess even while you were at Dalhousie, did this involve, like, say, for example, a test subject coming in and putting on that electrode cap? and then putting them through a, a, a test. It could be as simple as a multiple choice test or anything like that. Yeah, it did. I, I mean, I, the, the research, research spanned a lot of different avenues. So it, everything from human beings and, and their behavior, right down to animal models, right down to kind of staining cells and looking at, a, at, at it under a microscope. Um, where I was focused, like I, I wanted very, very badly to be able to study the, the formation of a memory between cells in the brain, but in a living subject. And that's, that's a pretty tough thing to accomplish. Um, I had some incredible leadership, some people who helped me during that time who had pioneered some of these methods, especially working with fish, funny enough. Um, and this is a tangent, but yeah, you know, there's, there's this principle where in, in certain, um, certain breeds of fish, 
you can actually image the brain through the skull cap just because it's a uh, it's quite thin and so when you when you have antibodies uh that are attached to like memory forming cells you can train these animals on specific memories you can you, you can have them go through you know learning exercises and then you know you can kind of take that animal look at it under a microscope and actually see those cells starting to communicate and form deeper connections so that's where I was really focused. I wanted to I wanted to have models where you know we could observe um, a memory being formed behaviorally, you know, uh, not not in a petri dish, but like a living animal, and then actually see uh, kind of scan its brain to to see what the physical impact of that learning experience was. Um, yeah, it, it was it was a mind bending uh, experiment, really. I have been part of those experiments. When I was in university, I had some friends who were doing neuroscience postdoctoral work and uh, they would bring me in as a test subject. They put the cap on and they'd put me through <laughs> these crazy, I wouldn't say they're crazy, but they were these multiple choice questions that involved celebrities and they were trying to map out what the brain was doing while you'd think about it. Like say, for example, they would put a photo up of um, a celebrity and their name would be underneath or incorrect name and you would have to be like, yes, that's them or no, that's incorrect as well. As a side note, it's the only job I've ever been fired from. I became a <laughs> I, I became a serial subject, and they kept and my friends kept bringing me in. And then someone somewhere said, "Okay, we've got all these experiments, and they seem to have the same test subject." So I wasn't asked back. So still, the only thing I've ever been fired from. <laughs> proud to say, <laughs> but okay. So here's where you and I disagree on one thing. You say Spotful was your first media job, but I'm going to disagree and say that Icarus Innovation Management was. So tell us a little bit about what you were doing there, because as I was reading through it, this is something that I wish I had in university. This this was such a, a cool project for me, um, kind of a romantic idea at the beginning. But uh, yeah, Icarus was my, that was my first shot at sort of designing and building a web application. Um, at the time in school, I was doing a little bit of computational neurobiology. So I, I, I messed around with coding a little bit. And uh, I was deep into research publishing at the time. I was also working as a writing tutor at the Dalhousie Writing Center. And so I would sit there and um, I, was, I, was helping, I was helping students, undergraduate students with their scientific writing. And so, you know, you've got all these kids in various classes, chemistry, biology, all this stuff, like neuroscience, psychology, whatever. And um, obviously part, a major part of the curriculum is uh, they're tasked with writing assignments, coming up with original ideas, um, you know, playing them through, writing them out and delivering these assignments. And these students would come in and work with me on, you know, the boring stuff, the bibliography, citations, references and stuff like this. But what was amazing to me at the time was uh, just how fresh those ideas were. You've got people who are not, you know, they're not looking for grants. They're not really deep into the research uh, or academic space but they're coming up with their own original ideas and they're putting them on paper and they're putting in the effort. So Icarus, um, I built this little web app, uh, which, which was called Icarus, um, where these students, regardless of, of their academic discipline or whatever, they, they could take these assignments and publish them in a peer reviewed journal digitally. Uh, the same way that we would do in, in formal academic research, you know, submitting to some of the big journals and trying to circulate your content within the academic community uh, my idea was to make that available to students who you know didn't have their master's or phd or postdoc yet but were thinking about this way uh, about this in, in novel ways 
so yeah, we built this uh, built this little um, built this little web app where they could submit their stuff and uh, it could circulate and and get praise, get peer reviews, etc. Um, I thought it was a really cool idea. It, it was also uh, the experience of building the tool was important for me, I suppose. Um, you know, I. It was the first time that I, I kind of I'm sitting in my in my little apartment in Halifax and I had this idea, sort of drew it out, um, and then took it forward to assemble a little tech team. Um, I raised an investment, like this was uh, the the investment that I raised from uh, from Mr. Olin, um, who put who put seven hundred dollars into the project. It was the investment that I raised at the time. But like you know, I went through the exercise of. Of pitching that and 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 uh, um, you know proposing a plan and uh, ultimately you know proving out a concept. So yeah, I mean with Icarus, I learned how to take an idea from concept from conception to reality, and that little exercise really paved the way for my future work in building businesses. See, I would have loved that if I had it when I was in university, because here's the problem I had with essays. It took me a couple of years in university to find my groove and really nail it. And I felt that high school did a horrible job of teaching you how to write an essay. And when you got to university, the professors are like, we're not here to teach you how to write an essay. You just have to write it and submit it and kind of hope yeah. for the best. Hopefully you did that. But going back to, um, so Giles was your first investor. So how did that pitch come about? You already mentioned that you knew him. He was your neighbor. Was it a little bit more informal or did he say to you, no, Andrew, if you want my cash, you've got to do it the right way. Yeah, I mean, it was a coaching thing at the end of the day. Like when I think back about it, I, I mean, what was fascinating about this is I I was going through the process, whether I knew it or not, of building a business case. Um, there wasn't any business case for this long term. Uh, like I, I couldn't really figure out a way to make money with this thing. But the idea was concrete. Um, the plan was concrete. And yeah, I mean, this this person took time out of his life to just ask me the right questions. Like, do you think people will actually pay for this? Or how would it work if this happened? Or, you know, presenting those scenarios that are important for entrepreneurs to think through. And that was gold to me. Um, yeah, so I mean, it was certainly not a, a formal process, but as I'm going through the, like putting the pieces together here, um, small costs would come up here or there. And this, you know, this person would ask me the right questions, which, if I if I was able to answer them, yeah, he came forward once or twice with with cash to help me over some of these little hurdles, like you know things like designing a logo or hiring a specialized developer to do to in, to put in a, a widget or an application, stuff like that. This funny story with Icarus, like I um I was very passionate about it and almost almost still am. <laughs> you can probably tell, but uh, the concept was a lot of fun, but there obviously wasn't much of a revenue model. The thing ended up ended up being shut down um, because uh, students eventually started using the platform to cheat on assignments, um, which oh, which God. was heartbreaking to me. <laughs> yeah. So at some point, um, yeah, I mean, people were publishing their assignments on here. You could also kind of message people, right? So if I'm a say I'm a fourth year student and and I publish this this paper that I've done um, on Icarus. You know, you'd have first year, second year students kind of going in, messaging that person, being like, you know, if I give you a couple hundred bucks, will you write my term paper? And, oh, jeez! Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you, man. Yeah, that was it. Was hard to get in front of, and um, 
that that led to the demise of the of the project. It sounds like it was, if I had to sum it up before we move on, just kind of an innocent academic version, almost of Facebook, that was uh, just geared towards teens and college and university students. Yeah, that, that was the idea. I mean, at the time, they were grand ideas, you know, um, who knew where it could go. The, uh, this was this was also the, that age, like it was during the rise of, of Facebook and, and similar applications, like these global apps that created kind of a nugget of value online and had wonderful network effect. And I think a lot of us at that time were sitting back watching these things happen and saying, you know, what are the what are the possibilities of me being able to throw something into the market? Then the market takes that and uh, creates a sort of a life of its own. Um, it was a it was a really really exciting time because we were watching things like Facebook happen, and I was I was desperate to throw something into the mix. You know, you've already mentioned that art was a big part of your life growing up. You used to frequent the galleries in Charlottetown, but talk to us about Nocturne Art at Night. If I I did my due diligence on it, and it sounds like I don't know, are you familiar with New at Blanche in uh, Toronto? Absolutely, because yeah. it sounds it sounds incredibly similar. So take us through what Nocturne Art at Night is, and then what uh, what did your role as director of sponsorship and funding entail? I was surprised that you found that on my LinkedIn page. I'm, I'm and I'm really glad that it's still there. <laughs> Honestly, it's uh, and this this does resemble uh, New Blanche. I think it's pretty much the exact same thing. In fact. The person who who brought this concept to Halifax, uh, Rose Zach, I think um, that was the event that, that she she had come from Calgary, and she brought that event uh, over to the East Coast with her, and yeah, so this was, I mean, I I was I was in university at the time, I was in Halifax studying, um, I've always throughout my entire career since this point always looked for ways to participate in the arts community, usually as a volunteer. Uh, so whether that's sitting on boards or, um, uh, yeah, putting together uh, putting together ideas with the people who are kind of involved in those communities, um, I love the idea of sort of empowering those chats. So Nocturne, yeah, Nocturne's an annual art event that covers Halifax with large art installations. Uh, it opens overnight. It's a citywide art fair that kind of runs from like 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. one one day a year, um, and it's just an absolutely beautiful thing. So, I I think I found an ad for this position like printed in a local newspaper, printed in the coast, Halifax. Uh, they were calling for volunteer board members, so I reached out. I got an interview, and then. They asked me, they followed up and, and, and said that they wanted me to step in as a director of sponsorships and funding. So in that position, basically, you're just you're raising capital for, for the uh, for the event, um, building business partnerships. Like it's all sponsorship stuff. So I would be approaching local businesses and saying, look, uh, can you can you donate um, five thousand, ten thousand dollars to this thing um, for you know, certain sponsorship positions, uh, classical stuff like gold, platinum, whatever. So I yeah. just want to ask you really quickly about that. Now that we're on the topic of you, how you were going out and chasing money, did that, did this job really help sharpen your pitch skills? Cause I mean, going back to it, when you managed to get the $700 investment for Icarus, this one's got to be a, a lot harder. Like you're not working with someone who has respect for you, sees potential in you. These are people that you've got to convince them to donate and possibly even try to 
demonstrate how there's going to be some sort of ROI by investing or sponsoring Nocturne. Yeah, absolutely. I like I had no pitch skills at, at the beginning of this whatsoever. I had never really done it. I was a cocky kid. I, I can tell you that for sure. So I, I definitely believe that I could go in and do this, but it, it led to a lot of uncomfortable conversations with business owners. I'll tell you in the first year or so that I was doing this for the first few meetings. Yeah, I would show up in front of these people and I didn't really understand the why. Um, I had always been drawn to events like this. So I would kind of go in and, and say, well, you've got this great opportunity to give money to this thing, you know, which is going to be great. And uh, that was the entirety of my pitch. So, yeah, it, it forced me to think a lot about that, to practice these things, to research it a little bit. Um, and then ultimately to get creative about building bilateral value, um, to bring money into the event. It wasn't just about convincing people with wealth to write a check. It was how can we build relationships that that are mutually beneficial around this opportunity? So, you know, um, we came up, I, at the end of it, I came up with a few kind of interesting models that benefited everybody. One was one that I, I will never forget. I think probably the first real business deal that I ever put together was, um, uh, it was uh, with a company called Propeller, a microbrewery in Halifax. Um, we were able to get them to produce like a limited edition beer for the event. And we got to brand the label. Like I remember I wrote the little description myself on the back of the bottle. And uh, so we sold a ton of this beer leading up to the event, which raised awareness, but also like most of the proceeds went, went to the event itself to fund it. So here's, here's you know, that, there's a mutually beneficial deal where the microbrewery is getting, getting this deep participation. Um, they're seen as a contributor to the arts. They're also obviously promoting their own product. And so are we. Um, yeah, it was, it, it was a blast. Plus like, you know, I was, I think I was eight, to, I was 20 years old or something and making a beer in Halifax. It was just, it was just a cool, cool thing. How did Spotful come about? Spotful got off to a crazy start. I was, I was still in school. Um, I had designed the product while, while studying neuroscience at Dow, uh, doing the memory research. And yeah, so it, it started off as a, as a way to deepen interactions between consumers or audience members and uh, certain types of media. So in the simplest terms, Victor, like Spotful, um, as you know, because you and I, you and I overlapped and worked together on that project years ago, but uh, it was an interactive video technology. So we had a piece of technology that would overlay on top of YouTube videos or music videos, even you know players like Netflix, and allow the audience to click on things that they saw within the video. It would pause, and then you could do stuff. So you could click on people or places or products and you could buy that product out of the video or you could you know find out more about a person or even even contact people i designed this product i guess in 2012 or something like that uh when i was in halifax and i was really excited about its potential again i was very attracted to um these web technologies, web applications. Uh, and I, I just love the idea of building something and putting it into the market. So I designed this little thing um, really based on human behavior. 
and again like deepening the relationships between consumers and the content that they were consuming it <laughs> after it, it's a crazy story i'm not i'm not sure um how far i can go into it but after finishing the design of that application uh i got really excited about the possibility of it being a commercial product i was very poor at this time too um you know surviving off like boiled eggs and granola um so i i took that design into the market I, again i was in halifax I, and i had been doing the nocturne thing i started showing this to local businesses throughout the maritimes um i would go to businesses who had recently invested in like a television ad or uh youtube educational videos things like that and said you know we can take this investment that you've made and immediately monetize it by allowing people to basically deliver on whatever your website's doing within that video so if you're trying to get leads if you're trying to sell tickets if you're trying to sell beer or what have you sell product merchandise whatever we can make sure that wherever that video goes it can carry the transactional kind of channel with it so if that's seen on facebook on youtube on a cell phone um you know copied in a in a blog people can buy things out of that video and uh anyway my businesses started placing orders and the, i mean the problem was at that time it was just a design i had not written any code no one had written code i was out there kind of showing people a product that did not exist so i quickly got myself into a situation where i'd sold a ton of product without having written any code at all which was very stressful <laughs> and and uh i really had nothing to lose at that time um uh except for you know an interest in the media space i guess uh so yeah i woke up one day i had sold this several times uh had about maybe $60,000 of revenue and um no product to deliver i in a panic i recruited a couple developers off kijiji um i started writing some front end code myself for for this uh it took us it took four of us about 6 months to build an mvp and deliver it to the clients who yeah those clients were getting pretty impatient at that point um but <laughs> you know we we pulled it off in yeah in, in just crazy circumstances we pulled it off and we came out of that with some revenue and like real market interest and like a business case believe it or not right we had turned this around pretty quick so um the team leveraged that to raise a small seed round and uh before i knew it like i was a startup ceo and we had started spotful that company uh, yeah I, that company within about a year after that crazy event um we went on to raise about 4 million dollars in venture capital uh we moved it out of halifax to montreal we entered uh entered uh, founder fuel and raised a partial round from real ventures um and then a couple of other local vcs in montreal um yeah it was just a wild ride spotful spotful went global in uh in 2016 i believe so we opened distribution offices in japan south korea germany new york and south africa and uh then the, the rest is history uh, yeah spotful was acquired in 2018 and shortly thereafter i started broadside where i'm at now
Okay, so let's talk about the acquisition because that's that's the goal of I want to say, and this is just completely anecdotal from the people I've met and spoken to. It seems like ninety nine percent of the people who are in the position that you were in with Spotful want to sell the company. Was that always the case for you? Was that part of the exit strategy? And even if it was part of the exit strategy, were you in withdrawal after? Like, was there a part of you that said, you know what, this is my baby. I helped create it. This was my first my first time being a CEO. I was doing it at such a young age. And and generally, though, when you get to a point where the company is strong enough to be acquired, there might be part of you that's saying, well, why don't we ride this a little bit longer and see how much further I can take it? Like, did you have that going on in your head? Or was it a very, or was it a very simple decision for you to make and say, okay, you know what, this is a good time to exit. You know, to be honest, uh, yeah, it really wasn't my choice. Um, we didn't have much of a choice but to exit when we did. the The company, the company had grown quite a bit. It had a lot of demand. Um, with that comes, you know, there there was board complications. We had uh, we had challenges with investors buying out other investors, uh, shuffling of of boards all the time. Um, I was a single founder and and I didn't have a lot of executive support within the company either. So I was getting pretty burnt out, to be honest. Um, and as we, you know, we were trying to plan our next growth phase. We had leveraged that 4 million venture to, to grow a great distribution network. We had great business cases. We had a lot of people kind of speculating about the company, where it could go, what it could be. And it got incredibly stressful. Um, you know, this thing that we had created out, out of pure sort of creative energy had become a very, like, like my job became very political. Uh, mm, and okay. it was, it was, a, it was a challenging time. So by the end of it, um, we had an acquisition offer that came from, from the board. Uh, and we really had no choice but to take it. So yeah, it was more, it was less of a, less of a, you know, popping the champagne type of exit and more of, um, you know, out, out of necessity, we, we were ready to move on. And I think a lot of companies, especially, especially first time founder kind of young businesses like this, um, de- like interest in the business and demand for the, for the technology just kind of overwhelmed us. And uh, yeah, it, when, when we walked away, it was, it was timely. Do you ever look back and see what the company's up to at this point? Kind of the same way sometimes we'll look up old classmates on Facebook or is that in the past and you just, (laughs) you just leave it behind you and move forward. It's a little bit of both, you know? Um, Yeah, I, I, have absolutely moved on and we've, we've built some, some great stuff and we, we, you know, we took some incredible things away from Swaffle. I mean, uh, uh, we had a successful exit, which was wonderful. A lot of the team also moved on to join me at Broadside Nine, which was unbelievable, right? A lot of those guys are still there today. Um, uh, I do look back on it every once in a while. I, to, to be honest, I'm not sure where it is. I think that uh, like what happens with a lot of these um, tech, like core tech companies, uh, the technology itself was kind of broken down and, and um, uh, applied to other widgets or other applications. I know that uh, it, it's present in a lot of transactional web technology now. But um, yeah, I mean, I I couldn't really be happier with where we ended up at the end of the day. Um, and that, that being Broadside 9 and, and the agency that we're running now. 
you didn't have a lot of downtime between Spotful and Broadside 9. It seems like you moved right into it. So what brought you there? Broadside started before I had uh, I had sold Spotful. Um, it, uh, it was a client, so they were using the technology to do transactional marketing uh, at a crazy scale. So Broadside is a programmatic agency primarily. So it's it's buying a ton of, even at that stage in 2018, it was buying a ton of traffic on behalf of top tier clients. And we would do collaborative deals there where, you know, maybe um, Home Depot was the client or, or BMW is the client and uh, Awful would be providing some technology for an interactive campaign and Broadside would be buying the traffic to distribute it. So this was my first peek into, you know, the real scale of paid, like programmatic advertising. Um, and I got really excited about the way that, 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 that Broadside was leveraging Spotful in the market because they were purely focused on ROI and returns. So they weren't interested in generating, you know, brand awareness, visibility, traffic. They wanted to pick up technologies like Spotful and others to be able to demonstrate real ROI against marketing spend. So I, I was jumping in as an advisor. I really just wanted to follow along to see where they were going with it. Um, it uh, I thought I saw this really as the next stage of my career. You know, I was I worked with a lot of agency clients, um, including like where I met you years ago. I'd work with them at Spotful, saw the ins and outs of that business and, and decided that, like, that, you know, if if that industry could leverage ROI focused marketing tech, then we could treat it more as a financial management um, approach than, than, than kind of clicks and eyeballs. So I came in as an advisor. I hung around the wings for a little while after the, uh, after the acquisition. Um, and then eventually, I mean, I, I wasn't doing too much, you know, <laughs> like I, I, I was, a. Uh, I got pulled into it just because I didn't have too much else going on and I, and I didn't want to miss it. I was excited about what they were doing. So I, I bought into the agency and became a partner. Then let's see, I bought into the agency in 2019. Um, in 2020, we expanded the broadside team into Malaga. Uh, Malaga is where the tech team of broadside is now. So they built proprietary tools to track ROI on campaigns. Um, so I, I kind of pushed that in and the same year I took over the CEO role. So now, yeah, Broadside has got, um, uh, a media services layer, which, you know, we've got several trading desks, one in Canada, in Montreal, um, one in, one in Malaga and, uh, more recently, uh, the one in London, which I'm in the process of opening now. Yeah. We're extremely excited about where, where we can go from here. But your business interests extend way beyond media and ad tech. Let's talk a little bit about, I guess we call it the offline or non-advertising or non-media related stuff you're doing. So first off, Island Seafood Co. This one really interests me because you jumped into one of the toughest industries possible, the restaurant business, and you did it during the pandemic, which seemed like it would have been the wrong time to open a restaurant. So take us through how that came about. Yeah, well, it, it it was the wrong time to open a restaurant, Victor. <laughs> but even though the potential for revenue, like, but to be honest, even though the potential for revenue and a profit was far lower because, and I, I imagine the, the pandemic rules were the same in Prince Edward Island as they were throughout the rest of Canada. You couldn't have people come in. It had to be takeout only. Did you look at that and go, this is going to end sometime? And 
commercial real estate, and again, I wasn't looking for commercial real estate back in 2021, is probably not in as much demand as it has been in the past. So did you look at that and go, maybe if we can ride through this, we're going to get, we're going to save a lot on startup costs just because of the pandemic. And then maybe we'll make it up in the back end two, three years from now when everything hopefully clears up. You got it. Yeah, it's a great take. I think uh, I saw an opportunity to build brand. That's that's what it comes down to. I I was approached by by some friends in PEI who wanted to open an oyster bar and and uh, retail retail seafood. Um, I saw an opportunity to do that in a modern way in, in, in an environment that has seafood kind of really baked into its culture. Um, and I said, you know, it, it's it wasn't a huge cash investment. We could do it fairly easily. It wasn't going to get a huge amount of traction over COVID. That was a given. But I have no experience in, in the hospitality industry whatsoever. I didn't want to get an onslaught in our first season. I like the idea of opening the doors quietly, building local community uh, before tourism came back, and taking that year or year and a half, whatever it was going to be, um, to really like let the brand sink into the community in Prince Edward Island. I love that idea. And so that's what we did. Um, it was more of a, you know, let's let's grab this thing and hold it and just, you know, be resilient, uh, be creative about the ways, the ways that we can keep the lights on and see if, you know, I, I love an underdog story, man. And I, I love a challenge like this. This was very low risk, but it was also like, you know, if we do it now, um, it will force that team to think really creatively and and modernly, I guess, about what hospitality is, how hospitality can scale. Um, yeah, I, I, I got really excited about that. So, I mean, what we ended up doing, like we got smashed by COVID and, um, and uh, coming into last winter, like this past winter, um, obviously we had very little, there are not a lot of people wanting champagne and oysters on the patio. Um, so, mm-hmm. We started a uh, a direct to consumer shipment business, which is which is active now and doing doing pretty well. So homes across the country can order PEI oysters directly from the shop. It ships in a day, um, and uh, we actually kicked that off with a with a kitchen party package that we sold last uh, last November. So for people who couldn't get back to the Maritimes because of COVID. So, you know, say you're from Halifax or from PEI, but you're spending this Christmas in, in Toronto or in, 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 in Montreal because you can't get home due to travel restrictions. We were sending kitchen party packages with, you know, beer, oysters, a playlist, all this stuff out to people. And that's what got it going. Your ad tech experiences, what have you been able to apply from that to the restaurant business and what hasn't carried over? When we think about customer acquisition, the way that I do it um, for largely digital product or or you know blogs, content, etc., we do acquisition for a lot of online services. Um, I've tried to do that for the restaurant business, and it simply has not worked because it's a it's a much more local focused enterprise, obviously. Um, but uh, yeah, the relationships have to be deeper. Uh, that's that's what I've noticed anyway in that community. I can't just. I can't just run a like a nicely targeted, really beautiful programmatic or or video campaign that's going to bring people into that physical location. Um, so either we haven't, either that's not possible, or we haven't figured it out yet. The one thing that has translated over really, really well is, I mean, 
you, you look at these web apps like Shopify, et cetera, like uh, all of the support that we have in the community for drop shipping and things like this. Um, a lot of restaurants that, that uh, or a lot of hospitality companies that I saw on the East Coast just hadn't thought about that in the past. So it was honestly a blast bringing those ideas to the table and saying, you know, why don't we just try this? We're not doing anything else. Why don't we see if this has legs? And uh, we found some, we found some good value in there. Your other company, tell us a little bit about Aslan Renewables. This is an absolutely beautiful project, in my opinion. Uh, uh, long and short of it is, uh, this is something, this was my father's idea. Um, he's retired now, but you know, he, <laughs> he's an entrepreneur in heart. So it, it like these things just won't stop coming out of him. Um, he had an idea to repurpose a lot of the dams in Prince Edward Island and, and Nova Scotia, where you used to see old water wheels. And I'm talking like the old wood, like uh, wood processing mills and stuff like that from the turn of the century. Like something um, out of Little House on the Prairie. You got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's the scenario. And it's pretty interesting. Um, in PEI, for example, where we obviously started this thing out in the 40s, 50s, 60s, all of those old retired mills were taken out of the waterways, right? Like it was broken down infrastructure, it was causing problems for fish, etc. So they were taken out by the government. And they were replaced by um, basically concrete dams. And uh, so anyway, he had an idea of bringing in like modern hydro generators um, of which and these are manufactured in, in the Netherlands and New Zealand, kind of all over the place and placing them in there in order to repurpose that water flow. You've got a little, these little waterfalls kind of happening anywhere where those water wheels were taken out. And so we got together with a couple, some local local engineering um, firms in Prince Edward Island and designed a system that would basically drop these turbines into all of these old abandoned locations and feed energy straight onto the grid. And uh, after we looked at the map and stuff, we, we found one that each one of those locations could power about 20 homes year round, which is not too bad, right? Um, but more importantly, there were about 230 of these locations on PEI and they were all exactly the same. So Aslan Renewables now basically manufactures a one size fits all uh, inshore hydro dam um, that can be copy and pasted, copy and pasted across the Maritimes to power thousands of homes year round based on uh, just repurposing all of these old abandoned waterways. So yeah, it's a nice, it's a nice, uh, my mother calls it a hobby farm, but uh, we'll see, <laughs> we'll see how it grows out. You know? <laughs> Andrew, this has been a fantastic chat. Are you ready for rapid fire questions? Uh, yeah, yeah, let's go. Absolutely. Okay. The campaign you are most proud of? Home Depot, Home Depot 2017, uh, 2016, 2017, I think. Um, Absolutely killer campaign. This was uh, this was my first fully interactive transactional campaign uh, that we did uh, all of North America. We did it with a couple other agencies. We sent out pre-roll with this thing that let users click on items that they saw in the ad and actually buy them. So you could you could buy a million impressions through a DSP with that campaign, and people could buy barbecues out of the impressions. It was groundbreaking. Your favorite movie. <laughs> and, uh, at the at the right now it's Patterson. I don't think like this is a this is a very small like independent film. Um, 
I don't think a lot of people know about this. I, I had to Google this one. Day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, well, on, it's awesome. And it's, it's an Adam awesome. Driver film yeah. too. And I think one of the reasons it's lesser right. known is because, I mean, he played Kylo Ren in uh, Star Wars. So everyone's going to gravitate yeah. towards that. That overshadows anything. The Empire Strikes. Oh. <laughs> that joke. Yeah. Sorry, go on. No, 100%. I, I watched this movie, Victor, and like, you know, life can get pretty stressful sometimes, especially right now. This movie was the most peaceful, like, like just beautiful film I've seen in such a long time. Just completely took the edge off. Like, it, it, I, yeah, I, I really encourage anybody to, <laughs> to at least sit down and try to make it through. Is it one of your go-to things to do when you're having a rough day? Oh, yeah, absolutely, man. I, I'm always looking for something that helps my sort of wind-down process. I also like to – I also have a long list of underdog movies that that I'm obsessed with. Um, like – but, I yeah, I, I love, like, a quiet, independent film for sure. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? It has to be Kevin Costner. I, like there's an age difference like a, we're talking like a 30 year old kevin costner i say that because i just i just wrapped yellowstone i i had i really really enjoyed it and yeah I'm, I'm gonna stick with that i'm also i'm also a huge fan of um message in a bottle one of my, fa- <laughs> one of my favorite <laughs> sailing movies of all time <laughs> well he also did Waterworld. i mean that's not what we want the world to look like, but Absolutely. another sailing movie, yeah. if you want to put it out there. Yeah, yeah. That's what inspired us to start Aslan Renewables, actually. Funny story. It's a, not really. That's a, that's a bad joke. But anyway. No, no I get you. No worries. Uh, okay, your favorite book. Uh, favorite book. Just just finished it. Reboot by Jerry Colonna. Um, uh, yeah. This guy, Jerry Colonna, is known as like the CEO Whisper. This is an incredible book. Um, it's about uh, he calls it the art of growing up uh, taking accountability and stuff like that it's absolutely phenomenal i really recommend your favorite song uh right now i'm getting into a lot of classical music um stuff that i can actually like meditate to i've got something like uh, the one i keep coming back to this month is called november uh by max richter incredible soundtrack yeah the best advice you have ever received Rest at the end, not in the middle. If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would you say? I'd say you have more time than you think. And my signature closing question, if you weren't in media or ad tech, what would you be doing and why? If I wasn't in the space, I would be in the energy space. Uh, yeah, if I wasn't in media, I would, I would be in energy. I'm really excited about the changes coming in that sector. And um, the impact of conversations like this, basic brainstorms in that category is going to be huge. Andrew, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Absolute pleasure, Victor. Thank you. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.